That's what she said is fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. Don't forget to check out DC and RC, featuring UFC legend Daniel Cormier and Super Bowl champ Ryan Clark, both Louisiana natives, as they hang out and kick around the hottest topics from across the world of MMA and preview and review the most important fight cards and storylines. ESPN Plus subscribers, join an ESPN Plus Fantasy Football League now for a chance to win $250,000. Sweepstakes is U.S. only, 18 or older, no purchase necessary. Visit ESPN.com slash ESPN Plus football rules for full details and official rules. That's ESPN PLUS football rules. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hello, my name is Stan Van Gundy, and my dilemma is... What snacks do I serve when I take people out on the pontoon boat? Because I do have people, even in my family, who like flavored chips. I'm morally opposed to that, Sarah. I believe chips should be plain. The dip provides the flavor. And so it is a moral dilemma for me. See, now, this is why I love you, Stan, because I'm totally agreed, morally opposed to the creation of weird flavors using odd chemical combinations created in a lab. Maybe you could slip in a barbecue chip every once in a while, maybe. But keep those Cool Ranch and French Onion and Nacho Blast or whatever chips away from me, okay? Ugh. Give me a plain chip, preferably tortilla, with a delicious fresh guac or a salsa or an artichoke dip, a green goddess, a hummus. There are so many ways to dip into some natural flavors made of actual food instead of B34 and E78. I remember I saw this junk food scientist, this guy who used to work for one of the big junk food companies on The Daily Show, talk about creating the exact right mix of umami, salt, sugar, to get people eating more and more and more of their chips and never filling up. And I really, I felt like I'd been duped. I did not like the idea of some weird combination of chemicals being designed exactly to keep me eating and eating and never being full. So now I, I just, as much as I can, I try to stay away from too much processed stuff. I like actual ingredients that I can identify that make up what I'm eating. And so chips with a delicious fresh dip, so much better than the flavored kind. Now, that being said, dips are trickier on a boat. So you got to serve them once you're sort of floating or cruising slowly. PSA, avoid the waves when you're dipping. That's what she said. Today's guest is NBA coach Stan Van Gundy, who went from the college ranks to head coach of the Miami Heat, Orlando Magic, who he took to the 09 NBA Finals, uh, head coach and president of basketball ops for the Pistons, and then most recently was the head coach for the New Orleans Pelicans for one season. Uh, he's also worked as an analyst for TNT, a professor at Stetson U, uh, currently fun employed after parting ways with the Pelicans after that one season. I don't often have coaches on here or really want to, but I'm fascinated by Stan Van Gundy his activist spirit, his thoughtfulness when it comes to politics, issues of race, voting rights, uh, plus, obviously, the fire takes on food items like plain chips. I liked him more and more every single time I heard him make an appearance on the Levitard show. Uh, he's friends with those guys, often goes on, and I just felt like he was always making sense about things both large and small, important and inconsequential. And there was honestly so much more I wanted to get into with him on this pod, but we were crunched for time, so... I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll have to have him back sometime. We do get into playing for his dad as a coach and getting benched, his issues with sports media coverage as a coach, uh, an incident over a decade ago that he still feels guilty about, the prison education work he's done, uh, what happened with the Pelicans and him, and also what's next for him. It's a great interview. You guys are going to love Stan. That's what she said. So the dilemma was actually foreshadowing for the introduction to this man because of course, I was impressed with him as a basketball coach. Of course, I'm interested and intrigued by the stories from behind the scenes of all the different players that he's worked with and teams he's been a part of. But 
it was when I was listening to him make an appearance on the Dan Levitard show with Stugatz, and he mentioned that plain chips are superior to all others and that the dip should provide the flavor, not the weird chemical accumulation that is supposed to pretend to be a flavor, that I realized we were kindred spirits. And it went on beyond that to so much more than just chip flavorings, to social commentary and, and other intelligent but ultimately meaningless opinions on food-related things. And I realized that... Uh, we should be friends. And that's why we're here today. And so we'll get into um, a lot of the things we connect on, but we got to start way back when, Stan, to you as a little kid. I know you and your brother, Jeff, were sons of a basketball coach. So were you one note for most of your youth? Was it all basketball all the time or did you dabble in other things? No, I wasn't all bad. Listen, if I had had my way, if I were even remotely good enough, um, I would have been a baseball player. I mean, I love baseball, still do. Um, wanted badly to be good at it. Was pretty good in Little League. And once we stepped up, I grew up in Northern California to Pony League with 13 and 14-year-olds. And I hit under 100, striking out in more and ha- more than half my at-bats. And not, not because I was a power hitter either. Um, yeah, I sort of realized that was over and that I wasn't even going to be good enough to play in in high school. And so then we sort of shifted over uh, to uh, basketball. So then do you think it was a different kind of athleticism that allowed you to play high school and college basketball, or was it solely the, the efforts of your father and his, his strategery that, that got you past whatever hump slowed you down in baseball? Yeah, no, I, I think the main reason I was able to play high school basketball was, um, a lack of talent um, that I had to compete against. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I, and I think also, you know, having grown up around the game and with my dad, my brother and I were in the gym all the time. We spent a lot of time working at it. And so I developed good enough skills to be, um, you know, a, a decent player at a smallish you know, high school out in the suburbs. And then at the division three level in college, um, I wasn't very good. So you and your brother, and correct me if I have this wrong. I know every, every little centimeter matters, but you're both around five, eight or below. Yes. Yeah. I think my brother's closer to five, nine and okay. I'm probably, uh, a little closer to five, seven, Okay. though he's probably honest and says he's five, eight. And I say I'm five, nine, even though he's taller. So, you know, I think I'm an honest person, but I do lie. I I do lie a little bit about my height. Yep. I I wonder if your father and mother from a young age were really pushing the going into coaching aspect of things, realizing that you probably would not be vertically gifted enough for otherwise. Yeah, listen, my parents, I think a lot of people are fortunate to have parents like this. Um, But my parents just, number one, wanted us to be happy, wanted us to find what interested us, but then wanted us to try to be the best at whatever it is we wanted to do. School was a a huge emphasis um, from both of them. And as long as we took care of school, then it was sort of whatever we wanted. But we were pushed to to work hard at whatever it is we did and to try to be the best. Um, You know, my parents did not tolerate um, lack of effort or lackadaisical Mm -hmm. effort or the idea of, you know, we'll just go out and have fun. I mean, that (laughs) now that that was not going to fly in my family. I don't even know if that's I I couldn't go back far enough to know if that was a principle in the Spain household or if they just birthed two daughters that were the most competitive people alive. And it never was something that needed to be brought up. All I know is that same in my house, we had a lot of fun, but I don't know that uh, any of us wanted to get into anything just for the fun of it. We were very competitive. Um, So I need to, I need a good story about your dad being your coach at whatever level it is. I need one of those moments that's either quintessential son of a coach, or maybe uh, you know, the storming out. I never want to talk to you again, kind of vibe. Well, I, I didn't play for my dad until I got to college. I played for him at Brockport State in New York, and uh, the the my most memorable uh, moment there was I was a sophomore, and I didn't start. Came off the bench. I was we were playing in a tournament, which in the Rochester area in New York is a big small college tournament. All of the eight local Division three schools. And I was having my best game. 
I'd ever had to that point. And I was scoring, I think I ended up with maybe 16 points in the game. Um, probably averaged about five or six that season. So it was a big game. And I got beat on one drive, literally one drive. And my dad took me out of the game, never to put me back in again in that game and said, all you care about is shooting the ball. And I, (laughs) like, I wasn't very good, but I played hard and I tried to defend (laughs) and I took pride and I got beat one time. I never got back in the game. And, uh, my motivations were uh, were questioned. Yeah, something tells me maybe he he did that. He needed an excuse to be able to prove that he wasn't going to be uh, the guy the guy who's offering favoritism to his son. So he waited for that one small error so he could prove to everybody that, that he was taking wasn't going to take it easy on you. No, he wasn't. And it, he, you know, listen, when I was in high school, he didn't get to see me play a lot because he was coaching. But he came to one of our games, and I remember. I and listen, I did in high school shoot the ball pretty much every time I touched it (laughs) pretty much. Um, And I remember him coming to one of my games, uh, either my sophomore or junior year in high school. And I get in the car with him afterwards. And he said to me, I hate watching you play (laughs) (laughs) because I didn't pass the ball enough. So no. Yeah. um, Tough love, tough love, tough love. And (laughs) a little bit more, uh, criticism maybe than uh than praise but it was always a point i hate watching you play and then he went on to say you have to pass the ball more you have to help your teammates more yeah so it was always about it was always about getting better you know i tell people i lived in the kind of family that you know if if i came home and i had five a's and a b plus on a report card we were going to spend an hour talking about the B plus, like what, what happened? Why was it? Why, why is it a B plus? Why is it an A? What do you need to do? All of that. I mean, that's just the way we were. I mean, I never felt like I needed to get straight A's or to achieve athletically for my parents to love me. They loved me unconditionally, but they also pushed me harder than anyone ever did. Like, yeah, that's most people would say, wow, those are really good grades. I, no, like what, what happened on that B plus? What happened? You didn't you didn't study for one test. Why not? What were you doing? You know, I mean, that was that's just it sounds it very was. familiar. I actually appreciate <laughs> it. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Lately, um, because of uh, the governor of Florida, who I really love, my favorite word is obfuscate obfuscate okay i definitely sense some sarcasm there when you're talking about the florida governor that's for sure but that's a topic for another time obfuscate is a great word uh to darken obscure confuse bewilder uh it originated in the 1530s from the latin obfuscatus ob being in front of or before and then fuscar to make dark from fuscus for dark sort of distantly related to our word for dusk And yeah, whole lot of obfuscating coming from those who should be instead shining a light on the truths and realities of the pandemic, helping make people more informed and educated and more safe. Too much to ask from public servants, I guess. But again, topic for another time. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is similar to obfuscate, but it's a dumbrate. And it has an interesting twist, okay, from the 1580s, meaning to outline or to sketch from the Latin adumbratus, sketched, shadowed in outline, or feigned, unreal, sham, fictitious, also from the past participle of adumbrare, which is to cast a shadow over. So the meaning of, you know, to darken or conceal or overshadow came about in English in the 1660s. So like obfuscate, it can mean to cast in shadow or to obscure, but it also has an alternate meaning to foreshadow or predict. So the same exact word can mean to obscure and to disclose. It's a contronym. We love contronyms around here. So confusing, so wonderful, so exciting, so mysterious. All right. So in a sentence, in the dark of night, a lone streetlight, a dumbbraided, a tall man, his long coat and low hat, a dumbbraiding any identifying characteristics. Yeah, listen to that one again. Wrap your mind around that. Love a contronym. Now let's get back to the interview. 
you become a coach at University of Vermont as an assistant, your first head coaching gig at Castleton State College in Vermont for a couple of seasons. You end up eight years as a college head coach. The entire time, did you have ambitions for the NBA or were you not sure early on? Listen, I, I came out, well, first, you know, when I was in college and decided I wanted to coach, Sarah, my my plan was I was going to be a high school coach. That sounded really good to me until I did student teaching. And then I said, no, there's no way I'm yeah, doing teenagers this. Teenagers suck. Yeah, no, there's no way I'm doing this. And so then I decided, you know what, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to apply for graduate assistance job at the college level and, and, you know, probably sent out 200 letters. And I mean, that was back at the time where, you know, I was typing everyone on a typewriter by hand, getting them in the mail, follow up with phone calls and and the whole thing. And my goal at that point was, I, you know, I had played division three and I always thought like, wow, if I could get one of these division three jobs, one of these good jobs down the road, 15, 20 years down the road, if I could get one of those jobs, you know, where you run a nice summer camp and you have enough money, that would be fantastic. There was a school in the area in upstate New York, Hamilton College in Utica, New York. Tom Murphy was a coach there at the time. I said, man, if I could ever get a job like that, that would be perfect. I mean, the NBA at that point when I was in college, I mean, that was... I mean, I loved watching it, but that was a whole different world. I mean, I never for a minute thought that I could be in that world. Yeah, but you did. You you ended up and and, and eight years is not that long of a time to go from collegiate jobs all the way to the NBA. Um, you, You end up. And listen, I should know this, but it's it's kind of before my time. Um, I'm reading about how Pat Riley wanted to take your brother Jeff with him to the heat. And the Knicks wouldn't let him steal his, you know, very valuable assistant to take him to a different team. So he hired you and said, I wanted at least one Van Gundy with me. I don't know yeah. how much of that is flippant or how much of that is true. What kind of relationship did you have and how did you end up being the other Van Gundy? I mean, I rode my brother's coattails, plain <laughs> and simple. No, I really did because, you know, Knicks fans will certainly remember that at the end of the 94, 95 season, um, Pat left for Miami sort of in the middle of the night. He took off and it was very contentious. And because of that, the Knicks would not, there was no way they were going to let Jeff go with him um, to New York. And so Pat was talking to my brother and said, um, you know, you have any suggestions? And Jeff said, you should talk to my brother. I had just been fired after one year as the head coach at the university of Wisconsin. So you know, my secret to mobility was getting fired at the right time. And, and failing so up, it's the secret of white men for eternity. No, you know what? I mean, yeah, fa- fail up, <laughs> fail up. And uh, so Pat interviewed me. I-, I had talked to Pat, I mean, to say hello one time after seeing an, you know, a Knicks Milwaukee game um, during that past season. And I interviewed with him and came back and he gave me a chance uh to take the job, I think in large part um, because I fit very well into their salary structure since I was still getting paid by Wisconsin. <laughs> they really didn't have to pay me much at all, just enough to get into the pension plan and healthcare plan. And so I got an opportunity and um, had my brother not been as good as he was as an assistant to Pat, um, there's no way I land that. But I think Pat said, well, Jeff was great. Stan must be at least decent. Yeah, there you go. Wow. Nepotism has been has been the key to the success for so many. But you had to you had to keep the gig and you had to prove yourself, which you did for a long time, because a dozen years with that team. Um, So take me to the moment. I know you've talked about this for a a, a long time and many years since. But the idea of, okay, the team's not that great. Let's give the job over to Van Gundy to be the head coach and Riley will be the president, but not have to work on an everyday basis with the team. Then you start coaching really well. The team gets really good. And all of a sudden he's like, I think I'd like to be the coach again, take advantage of some of this success. How did that feel? And and did it feel like what now history remembers it as, which is him just running you out to take that job back? No, that's not what happened at all. And, and listen, that's probably one of the most disappointing um, things in my career, Sarah, to be honest, because I have um, really strived to, 
to be honest in general, but especially with the media. I've tried to be honest and forthcoming. And that was my first NBA head coaching job. And I think the media there would have would have said at that point, you know, for over two years, I had been both honest and forthcoming. And then when I said that it was my decision to step down, nobody believed me. I mean, and, and so it really upset me because I, you know, because I just, I came to believe that the media just wants a story. And if the truth doesn't fit what they want, then they'll just make up whatever they have to go to. And and I was disappointed, especially because some of the people I thought I was maybe not friends with, but, you know, media you see on a daily basis that I built a relationship with, they still didn't believe me. And listen, I I, I did know or, or I felt that Pat wanted to coach once Shaq had, once Shaq had come. Right. Um, But you know, I went the whole year and we were the whole first year Shaq was there. We were 59 and 23. We lost in game seven of the Eastern Conference finals. And I could tell Pat was getting the itch. But at the end of the day, it was it was my decision. And people and Pat, actually, we were on a trip in L.A. And I'd already told him um, that I, you know, I thought what we should do. I, You know, basically what I said is, you know, I know you want to coach. I don't think I really want to right now with everything that's going on, but I can't walk away from, from the money and we were working something out, but we were on an LA trip and Pat, you know, has a place out there, Manhattan beach or Malibu or wherever had me over to his house and tried to talk me out of it, told me I'd regret it and the whole thing, but you know, I'd made up my mind and that's where we wanted to go. So um, that's what ended up happening. But to this day, you know, nobody frames that story. Yeah. Most people don't care about it anymore, which right. is good, yeah. which I'm glad about. Well, I'm but sorry to bring it up again. I just, No, no, but when it does, people, it's just this thing developed around it that Pat ran me out of town. And then it was, you know, Shaq got me fired. And <laughs> I mean, I just no one seemed interested at all. It never has in the the truth of what went on. But yeah, hey, that's, that's the way it is. It's it's partly sports, right? Because we like to have this very easy to digest narrative that fits into what we might already expect or something salacious that's going to shock people and grab headlines and give us something to argue about. So I get what you're saying entirely. I also wonder, though, knowing what we know about how much is obfuscated in the world of sports I like in, it. In pursuit of, you know, behind the scenes chemistry or not embarrassing someone with a, a great deal of power or, you know, all those machinations that go on behind the scenes, so many of which we never learn via the media. They just stay secret. Do you do you think that that's also at the root of it? It's not that people don't want the truth. It's that they're always worried that they're getting the wool pulled over their eyes by someone saying, no, I really wanted to leave. And wasn't it convenient that Pat also wanted to take over? Yeah, but the problem, and I get that, I do, but I guess the problem I have is, you know, I think that one of the things that I, well, the probably the number one thing, certainly in my career that, you know, I, I take the most pride in is my reputation as a person and being honest and acting with integrity and, there's only been one time in my career where I feel like I've, you know, acted without integrity. Um, and so you try, and that was after that. So you, you try to build up this, you know, you try to act with character and integrity and build up this reputation and people don't believe you anyway. So right. at times, you know, if I were bitter, which I really wasn't. But if I were bitter, I'd say like, it really doesn't matter how you act. You might as well be dishonest and everything else because people are going to write whatever the hell I want to write anyway. Well, the obvious follow-up then is talk to me about the time that you acted without integrity. Yeah. So in 2007, so I had stayed on our, my deal with, um, Miami was that I would stay on as a consultant and I did some things and um, 
really, it was just a way of, you know, getting the rest of my money and the whole thing. Um, yeah. I didn't do anything Good of value deal. for them. But in 2007, I had interviewed for the Orlando Magic job and it went to, it went to Billy Donovan. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I was out, I went out and interviewed with the Sacramento Kings with Jeff Petrie and Wayne Cooper. And, you know, I was interested in that job. And we got to the point, they were offering me the job, flew my wife and I out there and the whole thing. Um, and Billy Donovan, in the meantime, had decided to go back to the University of Florida. He didn't keep the magic job. And the magic wanted to hire me. And so we knew that before we get on the plane, but Pat Riley would not release me. He would release me to go to Sacramento. He would not release me to go to Orlando in the same state. So we got on the flight and, you know, sort of resigned to the fact that, you know, it's Sacramento or bus, the Orlando job's not there. We land in Sacramento. The deal was we were going to get in a rental car and go look at homes. And if my wife and I were happy with the area. We'd do the press conference the next day or the day after the whole thing. Well, as soon as we got in a rental car, we get a call from the magic basically saying, hold on, we think we can get this done. And so I basically hid out on Jeff Petrie for the entire day, avoided every phone call that he made. I wasn't up front with him and just said, Hey Jeff, this is what's going on because I was selfish. You know, I didn't want to lose the Sacramento opportunity if Orlando fell through. Um, and so instead of just facing up directly like a person of integrity, um, I avoided the situation and ended up taking the job and not talking to Jeff Petrie until after it all went down in Orlando. And it has bothered me since that day. I and mean, it's been 14 years and it's wow. still it still bugs me because, you know, I can, I, you know, I've had a lot of people that I've told this to say, well, I would have done the same thing. You know, I mean, you've got to protect yourself in the whole, th- there's just no way around it. You can make, you can have every rationalization there is and it was wrong and it was a, a lack of integrity and it was unfair with somebody who had been totally upfront, honest and fair with me. And um, yeah. yeah, I'm not, I'm not proud of that. Well, I, I, I offer you a ton of respect for for admitting that, but also for still caring about it, because there are most people who would say I had to do what I had to do to get mine. And the fact that you don't see it that way and still don't see it that way uh, says a lot about you. Have you spoken to him, obviously, since? I have. No, not. no I've never. Have you tried? No, nah, you know what? I, I did try. I, I emailed him. Um, I talked to him that night. I tried to apologize. Obviously, he didn't really want to hear it. And no, I really, I really haven't. It's never um, too late. I I've, really, I've talked I really about it that. publicly several times, but um, I don't even know where Jeff is. I maybe back in Portland, um, yeah. you know, but I mean, a good guy and they had treated me right and, and the whole thing. It just wasn't, it was not a, uh, it was not a proud moment for me. Well, I think if it still bugs you, it's never too late to reach out. You just, you never know. It's worth it, I think. So you talk about, you know, when your tenures have ended with places, people are usually looking for a reason. And sometimes coaches and systems or teams just fall out of favor or run their course. But you talked about the the Shaq thing, the Dwight Howard thing, right? That Dwight Howard might somehow be involved. Um, now with the Pelicans, your most recent job, um, people tried to make it about Zion and his family. And you've said, maybe. Uh, not not based on any interactions you had, though, right? Like you, it didn't feel like it was about Zion, but again, that's the one that gets the headline, right? Yeah, and, and listen, first of all, in in no cases were you know the players responsible for for getting me fired. First of all, and I've said this too, Sarah. I, this idea that players get coaches fired. No, I mean the decisions are made by owners and front offices, except for LeBron. Uh, you know what? Even there, <laughs> co- front offices and the owners have to make the decision. And it's sort of taken them off the hook by blaming it on a player. Certainly a player in the NBA. I mean, players are the most important part of our league. And certainly the really good players have every right 
to voice their opinion to management and say, you know, I really don't like playing for this guy, whatever. But then management makes their makes their decision. I know for a fact that Shaq had nothing to do with getting me fired um, in uh, in Miami. In Orlando, Dwight and I had a had a dust up. He had, you know, given them his opinion that he would like to play for someone else before our final season together. Um, but he didn't do anything at the end to get me fired. I just think our relationship, you know, mine and not the basketball side uh, with Otis Smith, but the, you know, above him, that relationship had sort of run its course. I mean, five years, a long time in the NBA, even when you're successful. And then when new Orleans, it was just David Griffin and I, I mean, we're philosophically way apart and I, would be absolutely shocked if Zion Williamson walked in and said, Hey, I want this guy gone. Not because I don't know how Zion felt about me, but I just, Zion's not the type of person that would do that. I mean, that's just not, that's not him. Um, And so I don't think any of those things happened, but again, those are a lot better stories than philosophical differences, philosophical (laughs) differences or, Hey, Stan's been here five years and, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're tired of him right. and ready to move ready on to somebody new. else, you know, or, and then, you know, in Detroit, nobody thought anything was, well, we didn't have players of that caliber, but it was pretty <laughs> straightforward. Yeah. You know, we didn't win enough games. I mean, listen, there's always a different reason and ownership and management has every right to do what they want in a, in a coaching sense. Um, and I think media wants a big story. And a lot of times there's really not much to it. It's usually you didn't win enough games. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm trying to picture you in a dust up with Dwight Howard, who, for those who don't know, is six foot ten and built like a truck. I don't need to hear about that particular dust up, but I am curious how a man of five seven and three quarters might find himself feeling ready and willing at any given time to stand in the face of NBA giants and come not really face to face, I guess, but face to chest and, and feel comfortable telling them what to do. And, and, and was that something you had to get accustomed to when you made the switch, particularly from lower level college to either Wisconsin or, or NBA? No, not really. I mean, you know, I, I think that, you know, as a coach, you just try to be yourself and, and you try to be really, really honest. And, and I think there's plenty of times that I have rubbed players the wrong way. I think that there are certainly guys out there who, who didn't like playing for me. Um, I think there are several guys out there who really liked playing for me. But what I always go back to, Pat Riley used to say all the time, um, that the player-coach relationship is a professional relationship designed to get a result. And, and that's what it is. So the, the problem I've had is people always look at those player-coach relationships and it's how much does the player like the coach? No, no, no. It, it's how well the player plays. Like I'll, I'll look, you know, for instance, at the Dwight Howard thing, everybody will try to play up. We had a bad relationship. I said, oh, wait a minute. You know, look at our record over that time. That, uh, Dwight was five, all five years, first team All-NBA, three-time defensive player of the year, you know, by far the best five years of his career. I mean, look at what's come after and everything else. Great relationship. I mean, yeah. that's what it's about. And that's what I've tried to stay focused on, like doing what I can to help players play better. And a lot of times, yeah, it, you know, it may upset guys um, at the time, 
But my job, now maybe I could do both. Maybe I could. I wasn't able to. Well, I was with a lot of guys. I think a lot of guys, you know, I think you could line up a lot of guys out there, Sarah, who enjoyed the experience of playing for me. Probably more than didn't. But there have been some guys and some high-profile ones who probably didn't enjoy playing for me, but they played well for me. Shaq, yeah. you know, another one we've brought up. So 2004, 2005, I thought Shaq should have been the MVP. Steve Nash got it. He had a far better year than the, his last year with the Lakers. And then it was the last year he ever averaged 20 points and 10 rebounds a game again. Like he played really well. Yeah. So I, that's what has concerned me. And, and almost to a man, I, there's not too many guys in 12 years or 11 plus years as a head coach in the NBA. There's, there's not too many guys who have underachieved playing for me, especially if it was for more than, for more than one year. And, and so I'll live with that. You yeah. know, I'll live with that. My job's not to, to have everybody like me or to win a popularity contest. You have uh, interviewed for and gotten a number of jobs, right? You've had a different number of different stops in the NBA. I'm always curious about that process and how much of it is what they already know about you from previous stops or from talking to others or how much is what actually goes down in those interviews. What do you think your strength is that allows you to keep getting opportunities? Is it what you put down on paper X's and O's and how you convince them that you want to use the personnel that they have? Is it just being an, a, a, a nice person that someone gets along with and is easygoing and, and they want to work with? What do you think is your, what stands out and keeps getting you opportunities? Well, I would say the first thing is, you know, my, my record. I mean, you know, it, it's, you know, hasn't been as good lately. I get that, but it's, <laughs> but over time, I mean, it has stood the test of time and my, my record is, is good. I mean, you know, and so it's really players that have gotten me the job. I mean, I, I was very fortunate. I mean, you get to coach Dwayne Wade at the beginning of his career. Well, Dwayne Wade's a great player and a great competitor and you win a lot of games. And then when you move on, Orlando goes, wow, they, they had a lot of success down there in Miami. And then you get to coach Dwight Howard and Rashard Lewis and Hito Turkoglu and Jameer Nelson and guys like that. And you win a lot more games and go to the NBA finals. And so the next team along wants to, to hire you. And, and so players make coaches careers. I mean, there's just, no way around that. I mean, that's how you get there. I mean, I'd like to think that I have done a good job um, in maximizing the potential of the teams that I have. Um, but you also have to be very, very lucky in this business. I mean, I've seen plenty of guys, you know, get jobs with bad teams that didn't have a chance to win. And, you know, they work their asses off to get the most they can out of the team to develop the talent. And then they're out the door because it's not enough. So I know I'd like to think that I'm good and I've taken advantage of the opportunities I've right. been given, but I also know I've been very lucky and very privileged. I'm not, I'm not stupid. I've gotten, and my first two jobs especially were, were really good jobs with really good players. Yeah. On TNT, after the announcement, the Pelicans were parting ways with you after just a season, Charles Barkley said, he's just too old school for those young kids, which in addition to the narrative around Zion and his family seems to be the other one that people are clinging to. But in interviews, you've said you don't really think that that's what it's about. You understand there's a big age difference and you're not going to go hang out and go to the club together, but that you felt like that didn't get in the way. Do you notice differences, vast differences in your connection and relationship with players now versus when you were coaching 20 years ago? No, not really. And, and, you know, I stay in touch with a lot of the guys that, that I've coached. I mean, you do go to the club. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't. Have I do not do asking. that. And you know what? <laughs> I don't think, I don't think players are looking for their coach to be a friend. No. I don't think they want it. Not quite if, like that. No, no, I, I don't. I look, I think they, they want somebody who will listen to what they have to say. I think they want somebody, honestly, I think what most players want, these guys are serious about the game and their careers. I want, I think they want somebody who will put them in position to play well right. and make as much money as they can. And, and all of that, I think that's what, 
what they want. So I, I take the whole old school thing. I take that as a compliment because I think there's a lot of good yeah. in old school. And so when people say old school, I sort of smile. Do you ever feel like, and this wouldn't have to be right now, maybe in the last decade or so, that you have tried to actively stay younger in any specific way? Because I am younger than you are. And yet for a woman in broadcasting, I'm probably I should already be out the door by now. Uh, at this point, I'm, you know, put out to pasture. So sometimes I do try to actively find ways to be like, am I losing touch? Do I need to listen to this music or read this thing or watch this thing? Because I need to stay young for the job. Did you ever do that? And if so, what are your tips and tricks to uh, what, what did you aim for when you tried to make those connections? You know what? I don't think I've ever really tried to stay young. I do try to stay attuned to what's going on in the world. And like, I really, where I really struggle is with uh, technology and things. If it weren't for my four adult <laughs> kids, I don't know that I'd get anything done, but I, I don't try to, you know, listen to the same music that they do. In fact, I try to encourage them to listen to my music. And <laughs> I got through only to the point that there was one game this year when I came in the locker room, we would normally shut off the music and do our meeting 38 minutes before the game. And I was walking in and I got one game where Lonzo Ball, who always controlled the music, gave me some earth, wind and fire. Nice. So nice. I could come in. Yeah. I feel comfortable but only once in 72 games. So, All right. Well, take what you can get. <laughs> you know, absolutely. But so I try to bring them along, but no, I'm not afraid of, of getting older. I'm not afraid of growing up. Um, you know, I, I think that if we do things right, we should get a little bit wiser as we yeah. go old, grow older. So I'm not really, trying to be young. And I don't think I could anyway. I mean, I really don't. I mean, I'm old. I'm old. I gonna, if we don't have a game, I'm going to be in bed by 10 o'clock. I just am, you know, and I'm going to be up early in the morning and, and all the things you think of with old people, that's me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And when you're younger, I, you're like, you're not even trying. And then you're like, Oh, now I get it. And the older yeah. you get, you're like, now that makes sense. Um, what you just said reminded me of a great quote from one of the Beastie Boys at Ad Rock, who was talking about someone finding something that you said years ago and feeling differently. I'd rather be a hypocrite than the same person forever, which is such a great, like to, to my point earlier, I don't understand people who don't want to get better. And that's both literally at skills and also just at being a person. And I think, you know, besides your excellent choice and plain chips that then are added to a dip, your activism and your, your social, um, takes are, are things that made me like you so much more than anything that basketball could have. And about a year ago, when you were in the bubble, you were, you were tweeting about your dad's birthday, that he was turning 85 on August 17th, which by the way, is a day before my birthday. So Leo's that's, I mean, that's the magic right there. And you said, he's been a role model to me, my brother, and many, many others. He disagrees with me on most things political, but taught me to think for myself and stand up for what I believe in. So I find that fascinating. Whenever someone who is so forthright and opinionated about something um, that, 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 that maybe that activist spirit comes from disagreeing with and deciding to, to engage with your father or, or how do you think you got to be frankly a straight cis white man who cares so much about other people and, and the world in ways that a lot of stereotypical straight white cis men don't. Well, I think number one, um, my parents did raise me to think for myself. I mean, they weren't trying to indoctrinate me into necessarily their way of thinking. Um, number two, basketball. Basketball, without basketball, I don't come into contact with people of who come from um, different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. I, I just, I wouldn't have had that experience as much. I had a little bit of it in high school, but I wouldn't have had it as much. And then um, a wife who has pushed me to be a much, much better person. And then my kids, you know, and the young people bring a different thought process to thing. And three of my four kids are daughters. And so I've come a long way on the, I think always, because even my daddy's conservative on most things, but not when it comes to racial equality, my dad's yeah. always been pretty far left. Um, so I sort of always had that. That was, I think, because of basketball. Um, 
but I probably wasn't quite as attuned to, uh, you know, the discrimination against women and the misogyny in our society. Um, and even to be quite honest with LGBTQ plus yeah. people, um, my daughters and my wife brought me further to the left on women's issues. And then some of my kids' friends in high school and things were LGBTQ people. Um, then I coached Reggie Bullock in Detroit, yeah. you know, and he had a, uh, a transgender sister yeah. and who ended up being murdered. I mean, you know, and, and so Just all awful. of these experiences bring you along. And I look at my life and I say, you know, I was fortunate in this regard. And I think a lot of times when we have people on the other side who are against equal rights, whether it's for women or racial minorities or LGBTQ people, they haven't had those same experiences. Mm. I think when you've gotten to know people, it's pretty hard to oppose their opportunity for equal rights. And yeah. so I don't think I've done, you know, anything that most people wouldn't do if they had had my experiences. I mean, I can recognize all the privilege I have because I see these, I mean, I see the other people that I played with in high school and college, and then I coached and I'm like, you know, holy crap. I mean, I had it a lot better. And I didn't come from money. My parents were both teachers and my dad was a coach and, you know, we were middle class, but you know, you see these other people who don't have the same opportunities and you just say, this isn't right. Like if yeah. they had the same opportunities I had, they'd be here. So I see the privilege and, you know, a lot of people will talk to me and criticize me for what they call white guilt. I, I don't have that. I don't, I don't have a white guilt. I'm not trying to bring white people down. I just want everybody else elevated up and having the same opportunities that we have, that my family has had. That, that's, that's all. And then if we could ever equalize opportunity, well, then maybe we could get to a meritocracy. But right now, it's these people who talk about wanting a meritocracy are full of crap because what they want is privileged opportunity. And then when we get here and it's time to get a job or time to go to college, oh, now it's going to be a meritocracy. Well, that's a crock. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and well, and white guilt is the same as, you know, social justice warrior. It's terms to try to apply a negative to a positive, which is awareness and care for others, a dedication to activism and equality, like all of those things. You just assign a word to it that then you can use as a rallying cry for people who want to criticize. Um, yeah. And and and. I'm I'm glad you said that. I think the solution, obviously, for your dad leaning conservative is to get him to coach a lesbian basketball team. You got women, you got <laughs> you got LGBTQ. I just, you know, get him in those rooms the same way he got with coaching uh, basketball. No, you're, you're absolutely right, <laughs> because, you know, when I went to college and, you know, I was a division three athlete, but, you know, there were a lot of teams at Brockport and, and you know, you get to know the other athletes, as you know, I mean, um, and you get to know. The other athletes. Now, when I went to school, none of the men were going to be out. So right. the numbers will tell you there, there had to be mm -hmm. a fairly decent percentage of gay men playing sports, but you weren't going to meet them. But the women were. And so you would meet women who were lesbians and, you know, you're like, oh, they're the same as all of us. Like, yeah. The thing that's always <laughs> sort of gotten me about that whole thing is. Like, I don't care who my heterosexual friends are right. sleeping with. I, right. I don't Not care. They make me hang out with them and they suck. Well, and then I'm going to yeah. chime in. Well, so that's, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah, but, I'm like, you could do better, yeah. girl. That guy is beat. But other than yeah, that, I care like, about <laughs> who I have to hang out with. But I don't, like, you're sleeping yeah. with him. You're sleeping with her. I don't care. So why right. would I care if they're yeah. sleeping with someone of the same sex? I, I just... That when it doesn't have any effect on me, you know, nope, like sure does if you're making me sleep with somebody I don't want to sleep with. OK, now that might be different. But right. You want to live yes. your life. Let me live my life. And I it'll totally all agree. Be good. I just don't get it. I don't get it either. That's why it's so heartening when you can find allies in positions of power that have some influence and some agency like you who are out there fighting the good fight. We are running out of time. I have two quick questions for you. Uh, you're fun employed. What's next? 
Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I hope maybe uh, going back and doing some uh, broadcasting of NBA games. I hope that will, uh, I hope that will work out. Um, I enjoyed it when I did it. Um, and it allows me to stay home, not have to move my wife around again. I think she's about had it. Um, <laughs> she's lived this life for a long time. Yeah. Um, and we love where we're living in Central Florida. So I'd like to do some of that. And then we'll be involved. You know, the 2022 midterms are coming up. We'll be involved on the local state and, and in terms of contributions, the national level and things like yeah. that. And then we'll get involved with um, educational charities and criminal justice reform. We got involved with a um, prison education group where we taught up, my wife and I taught a class up there before oh, awesome. we went to New Orleans. And then we want to stay involved with uh, that group. So there'll be plenty to keep us busy, but also plenty of time to get out on the pontoon boat on the St. John's <laughs> River and, and cruise, uh, cruise up and down. Um, and go on the Levitard show. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, the, the thing about the Levitard show that has always been uh, the best for me is I, I just end up laughing. the Yeah, entire we time all do. Yeah. And when you're on it or when you're listening, it's an it's and you never know where they're going to take it next. Uh, I believe actually the last time we had scheduled to do this podcast, which was more than a full year ago or what maybe was around a full year ago, you you were hosting a Jill Biden event at your home and you were like, I'm so sorry to cancel. And I was like, you're good. I think that takes precedence. So we're cool with that. Um, all right. Also, has there ever been a double Van Gundy broadcast yet? We did do one, um, the last, so my first year out of Detroit, I did some work for ESPN, mainly substituting for Chauncey and Paul Pierce. And well, I never subbed for Paul, but Chauncey and Jalen Rose subbing for whoever couldn't make it in to their studio yeah. show. But there one night in LA, they put, uh, Jeff and I together with Dave Pash on a, um, Lakers uh, New Orleans game of all people. Uh, that's when Anthony Davis was trying to force his way out of yeah. New Orleans. LeBron was hurt. Was not a was not a great uh, game. game. But Jeff and I uh, we got the double the double Van one. Gundy. Love yes, that. We did. Um, okay, in a minute or less, tell me what my Chicago Bulls are getting with Lonzo. Well, first of all, great person. Just a great person. Can really shoot the ball has worked really hard to get to the point where he could shoot the ball. Um, really good in transition, throwing the ball ahead to people, extremely unselfish and great size, length and defensive instincts. So, um, and he's playing for a great coach in Billy Donovan. I mean, I, I think that the way Billy has Chicago playing last year would fit Lonzo really, really well. And I think with he and Zach Levine in the backcourt, you know, they have they have great, great size. So they're going to be able to do a lot of different things defensively. I'm looking forward to watching that team. Me too. It's been a while since I really wanted to sit down and watch the Bulls a lot. And I'm feeling a lot better. OK, you have to do the one thing everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Number one. Your current career is canceled, which isn't any because you don't have a career right now. But let's just say coaching and broadcast is canceled. What job do you do instead? I teach. Awesome. Any particular topic or subject? Uh, you know, civics, okay. um, political science, you know, Love history, it. something cool. like that. Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, I'm scared every night coaching in the NBA against the people, <laughs> against the players you had to coach against. Like, is this game plan got any chance of working <laughs> against great. LeBron James oh, or Joel great. Embiid or Giannis or whoever it is? Yeah, that's why Levitard always tells you to stop coaching. It's not good for you, friend. No, it's You're not scared good every for night. me. Yes. Uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Oh, I, hitting a baseball. Oh, that's hitting a right baseball. I would that. just love one time. I've never had it. I'd love to have one time what it feels like to hit the ball on the barrel. You know, <laughs> not I, I even would, a homer, just a good, oh, no, good, just hit it good on contact. The barrel. <laughs> just good contact. I would love to know what that feels Amazing. like. Um, oh, that's great. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? Uh, Barack Obama. I'd love to spin. Right. I've met him on two occasions, but for oh, very so brief conversations, um, 
And both times, actually, all he wanted to talk about was your Chicago Bulls. Of course. You ever listen to that pod with him and Springsteen? That just made me want to just pull up a chair and have a beer and hang out with them. I have not, but I want oh, to go so back and sort of binge it because yeah, it's those a great are two listen. really interesting people. Great listen. Okay, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Oh, wow. Well, I'll tell you, and this is going to sound crazy. I drive my kids crazy with it. But when you get in a car, okay, the air conditioning has to be set to a temperature and left on auto. It has to be left on auto. You don't turn the fan up and do all of that. No, no, no. The car knows. The car knows how much it has to blow. Put it on 70, 72, 74, whatever it is you want. 74. but and leave it alone. My kids, I get in their car. It's okay. not on auto. It bugs me, really bugs me. Because you turn it up, but it's just hot air at that point. You're like, it'll get there when it gets. Yeah, I agree. But 74 is too hot for me. I'm going to go oh, yeah. 70, no, no. 70, I'm going 68 70. to 71. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, we're aligned again. What a surprise. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, wow. Um. Man, that's a tough one. I, I mean, I've been embarrassed a lot in my life. Um, but well, I'll tell you what, I'll go back to my career. So I'm a first year head coach at Castleton State College in Vermont, Division Three. I'm 24 years old. I have a really, really good team. And we're playing another undefeated team. It's like the ninth game of the year. And they score to tie the game with like four seconds to go. And I'm screaming for a timeout, which my team takes, which we did not have. Oh, no. So technical foul, and we lose the game. And since then, I've always wondered about these guys who have to get their first head coaching job at the NBA level. Like, I was able to make the most egregious mistakes at a level where nobody knew what was going on. That's how I feel about my career. Just say all the dumb things for the small website that no one was watching. There you go. Um, Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Well, I'd like to get in a lot better shape, but you know, it's easy to say that, but if you (laughs) wanted to, if you, if I really wanted to, I would. Right. So, (laughs) you know, I, I think there's still so many things that I want to do better. I want to learn about, um, you know, there's just so much out there. I know that by the time my life ends, I'll still be hundreds yeah. of things on the table that totally. I didn't learn enough about. So, um, you know, but we will start working on the physical part of it <laughs> yeah, sometime soon. I find my favorite day to start anything is tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah, agreed. Tomorrow is the best day to start. Absolutely. Uh, number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? Okay, I'm going to have a tough one between two. I'm either okay. going to have... Aretha Franklin, uh who uh, I've seen several times once at a Hillary Clinton fundraiser in Detroit in 2016. So she was literally 20 feet from me. Amazing. Um, John Legend, I'll actually go three of them, who I've also seen and met at a fundraiser in Miami, who I was that close to. And then my favorite all time band, Earth, Wind and Fire. Okay. I mean, let's put them all together. I'll give you all three. You earned it. Ooh, uh, there you go. That'd be a hell of a yeah. group right I'm there. I'm fighting over who's going to open for who. Uh, yeah, number nine, uh, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, you know what? I, I do think I, I gave you the incident earlier yeah. with Sacramento Kings. I, I would say that's my biggest failure because it's a failure. It was a failure of personal integrity. I mean, the other one's you fail, you lose games, things you like that. Something. I mean, yeah. yeah, my biggest loss as a head coach was game two of the Eastern Conference Finals in 2009. We were up one game to nothing, and LeBron James hit a shot that every year at playoff time they still show. Um, <laughs> to beat us, a three, we were up two. We could have been up 2-0. We would have swept the series. And I didn't have the guy on the ball come off and double-team him. Big failure. It evened up the series. We still ended up winning the series. Thank God. But yeah, I've never forgotten that moment. Oh, you got to love the replays of it too. All right. We're out of time. So final question, three individual words you most hope people would use to describe you. Uh, God, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would, <laughs> I, yeah, don't I, know. I don't know three individual <laughs> words. I, I just, I hope most people would say, you know, He's a good guy, treats people well. He gives a shit about what's going on. I'm going on. with gives a shit. 
That's gives perfect. a shit would be gives good. a shit. Yeah, it applies they, to everything. I'm good it for really that. does. If they would just say it, dude, put it on the shit, tombstone. <laughs> I'll take it, Sarah. I will take it. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this, Stan. I could have talked to you forever. You're you're just the best. I appreciate it so much. Absolutely. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is a place where I rant about something, rave about something, tell you to read, watch, listen. And today, a very exciting development. In just a few days, August 11th, the 2021 edition of the Tops Allen & Ginter Packs are going to be available for purchase. And yours truly is part of this year's collection. That's right. I got my own Tops baseball card. Too freaking cool. Uh, of course, it's not a baseball card. It will not have my slugging percentage <laughs> or my OPS, but if you're not familiar, uh, these cards were originally back in the 1800s, cigarette card sets that would be promo items for the Allen & Ginter cigarette brands, and they would have everything from famous baseball players to non-athletes, birds, flags of the world, all sorts of stuff. And in 2006, Tops decided to revitalize the brand and the name for these new packs that have celebrities, broadcasters, famous buildings, animals. Uh, so if you buy a pack, you could get a Spain. Uh, some of them are autographed. Some of them have a relic, a tiny piece of my T-shirt that's embedded into the card. So it's super rad. Uh, and if you get a Spain, tweet me a pic or a video at Sarah Spain on Twitter. I would love to see it. My buddy Roy Wood Jr., the comedian from The Daily Show, is also in the pack this year. And Kevin Nagandi from ESPN as well. So lots of fun ones that you might happen upon. Uh, and so go get your Allen and Ginter sets and, uh, and send me, send me a little vid or a photo if you happen to get a Spain. All right. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you've got guest suggestions, questions, dilemmas, whatever. And you can always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to that's what she said with Sarah Spain, rate it five stars, please. And give a review. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 